Buffalo again. No, they, but they, they kept that same Bell theme song, though. You'd think they would have did something with that, right? They were too busy changing how they... You're listed now as contributing artists at all. Ooh. <laughs> I'm say, you're important now. Get up in the world. Yeah, I mean, you would just figure they'd make something more melodious. I don't know. It's, it still sounds like kidnapped by communists and forced to endure gongs being the high end of the gong. Ding, ding, dong, dong, dong. Stop. It reminds me of like a, a shitty department store, like you know, third floor ladies lingerie, you know, in the elevators. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, the ship had talking elevators, so it's like floor thirty nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that much, but you know, floor eight. Four. It's like after a while, you're like, yes, I know, I know, floor six. <laughs> All right, you ready yep, to go? Let's roll. Right. What's well, like girl six from Spike Lee? <laughs> Nobody ever talks about that in this over of films. <laughs> a fucking call girl. Phone sex. So, you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> well, Freudian slip. Uh, do yeah. over, do over. Uh, so, uh... <laughs> In the words, it's inside the gold mine. Your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, the films of Philip Marlowe. Only here on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. something different rather than tackling a genre director actor we're actually going to take on a fictional character as represented in film raymond chandler was a dual citizen of the uk and us who turned to writing when he lost his job as an oil exec in the great depression in addition to co-scripting double indemnity with billy wilder strangers on a train with alfred hitchcock and writing the blue dahlia which starred alan ladd and veronica lake he wrote seven and a half novels in his lifetime, and most of them were turned into film, some several times. The character, Philip Marlowe. Some of these films were produced under different titles or in established B-picture film series revolving around established radio detectives like The Falcon and Michael Shane. Others became much-celebrated entries in the noir and the neo-noir genre, and high points in the filmography of big names like Humphrey Bogart, Robert Mitchum, and Elliot Gould. And with directors like Howard Hawks, Edward Dimitrik, Robert Altman, and Michael Winner, we're not exactly talking programmers here. Mm-hmm. So join us tonight as we talk the films of Chandler's Philip Marlowe, only here on Weird Scenes. So, good evening and welcome to the first episode of our 11th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze and virago of vituperiveness, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight, as stated in the promo, Chandler only wrote a handful of novels, most of which were adapted for film. His first, The Big Sleep, was filmed twice, with Humphrey Bogart in the 40s, and again with Robert Mitchum in the late 70s. Farewell, My Lovely actually got a triple take, first under a different name and shunted through the lens of the Falcon series with George Sanders, and then as Murder, My Sweet with Dick Powell, 
And once again, under Mitchum in the late 70s. The High Window, too. It's a Michael Shane picture with Lloyd Nolan. And again, it's the Brasher Doubloon, curiously neither using the original title. Lady in the Lake only got one filming, with Robert Montgomery both starring and directing. And The Long Goodbye was limited to the Robert Altman, Elliot Gould iteration. We'll get to all of these, as well as presumably the two films released or about to be released is Simply Marlowe, assuming that my co-host was able to see or look into the first one. Uh, no such luck on my end. Though I have my doubts about anything starring James Garner, the rubber-faced wise-ass of Rockford Files fame. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Lewis Paul, hello. Hello, it's good to be back. Is there anything you want to mention before we go on? No, this, this, this was an idea I had because there are many films, whether they're in a series or not, that contain a character from literature. And I always thought this was an interesting one. If we look around, dig around, we might, for down-the-road shows, might might find something as interesting in this. There's not a lot of films, about more or less a dozen. Yeah. But uh, interesting actors and interesting takes on the character. Yeah, I know you have a problem with the James Garner <laughs> Marlowe. <laughs> well, I couldn't find I, it to see it even, but I mean, I figured out what. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's I think uh, was it Waters or somebody has as a they still do this too. The made on demand DVD from the from the right. Warner archive. I think it was I think it's was MGM. Both of them are doing that. They just don't make it as well known nowadays. It's not a great film, but it's notable for a few things. We'll get to that. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm fighting with my cat here. I don't want him to step on the computer and he seems determined to. Because you never know what happens when he gets there. Oh, there you go, little guy. Figured he wanted some food, but he said, nope, and meowed at me. Uh, <laughs> the joys of being a cat owner. So, the first one that we'll get to is The Falcon Takes Over from 1942. Right. Which, as I mentioned, is an adaptation of Farewell, My Lovely with the detective, The Falcon, uh, known for the radio show, where it was portrayed by Tom Conway, uh, was involved certainly in the film series, but also in the radio show. And he's substituting for Philip Marlowe in this case. This one is with George Sanders, as I mentioned. One thing you'll notice about the Marlowe films is that they're never truly a series like you get with other gumshoes like Michael Shane, reformed crooks like Raffles, Boston Blackyard, The Lone Wolf, or detectives from Sherlock Holmes, Charlie Chan, Mr. Moto, Mr. Wong, Philo Vance, Bulldog Drum, and The Saint, or for that matter, The Falcon. We'll touch on this in depth when we get to the next couple of films, but Chandler's stories were tested out once or twice for the original scripts adapted into existing detective film series, only to be outed with Murder, My Sweet in 1944, and setting off a feeding frenzy across all five major studios, inclusive of two more proper remakes of these early test films and a trio of neo-noir remakes in the mid-70s. Such is the quality of the material that it transcends some very different styles and degrees of acting ability, directors both of note and at best journeymen, and being shunted to establish presumably somewhat far afield leading characters. Like In this earliest case, eventual suicide George Sanders, the older brother of Tom Conway. <laughs> well, it's true. Each of whom worked on the same radio series and film series. Conway taking over for Sanders in the Falcon film series for Bezel Rathbone on the Holmes radio show, and for Vincent Price on the Saint radio show, a role Sanders is on film for many films. So it gets kind of confusing, like, which brother's here now? Unlike later iterations of the same story, or for that matter, Time to Kill's shunting of Marlowe into the Michael Shane role, this one's too stiff for its own good. 
You know, perhaps it's influenced by the stodgy acting style of Sanders himself, mm. who'd famously end his career working on the Batman show with Adam West and Burt Ward as my personal favorite, Mr. Freeze, the one without the stupid astronaut outfit, where they had the split screen color shifting from red to blue, and the, our heroes would alternately hop around freezing or not. Hilarious stuff, but definitely my favorite of the Mr. Freezes. The pluses here are some foggy atmosphere in a cemetery scene, Sexy, throaty voice Lynn Barry playing one of her many vamp characters, as often seen in other films like Charlie Chan films or Simoto films. Likeable B-picture regular Alan Jenkins is one of his usual blowsy cops. And to a lesser extent, horror film regular Turhan Bay and Hitler Dead or Alive mustache shaver Ward Bond in a role far better essayed by Jack O'Halloran in the 1975 version of what's more or less the same story. What's odd here is that Time to Kill doesn't bend the strictures of the story all that much to fit with its series or leading man, but this one doesn't come off very much like Farewell My Lovely or Murder My Sweet at all. It really just feels like a rather poor Falcon film. So uh, what's your take? Did you get to see this one? Yeah, yeah. No, I did. I, there, there was a time when I, I, when I was younger, but not that much younger. There was a time when I really loved watching all these things. And uh, all I have to say, back in the day when AMC first hit oh, yeah. cable and they had no commercials, mm-hmm. they would do these things. They would do marathons. Marathons. I love that. All yep. the Falcon films, all the Saint films. I mean, we're talking the early Saint films. And uh, Oh, God, I wish they would put that Lewis Hayward one out in New York. Oh, that was a good one, yeah. And all these noir things, and and I really had a love for that stuff. Anyway, having been much younger, saw them on television when I was in black and white, folks, when when there was no color TV. Mm-hmm. But I was a kid, and <laughs> some families couldn't afford colored televisions, but they had these big monstrous things. They looked like furniture because they were big, <laughs> yeah. big screens. I mean, yeah, big, they were big furniture in a lot of cases. Screens. You had to do the winky thing, which was a, a children's show. And they used to have uh, promotions like, you want to see Winky Dink in color? Go to your local toy store. And it was a tri-color piece of weird <laughs> plastic. Because, you know, you put your hand on a, on a television screen. Well, it's static. Static, right? So these things were thin, and they were like blue, green, and I don't know, whatever the other color was. So you put it on there, and you have fake color. Do you think that's why all those, like, telepreachers used to do that crap? Put your hands on the TV, because all these morons would think they're actually feeling the power of Jesus, and it's really just static electricity from the cathode ray. <laughs> well, that's a good point. So this is in the days pre-colorization. Yo, before anybody really thought about that stuff, I, I'm assuming you're using the Winky Dink and Me thing. And guys, you can Google Winky Dink. Um, so here's the, yeah, it's, it was a children's thing. Very strange. It was like, and you could, see, the thing was, you could draw over this thing you put on the TV. Like, oh, no, Wiki thinks at the cliff. Quick, draw a bridge. Yeah, but then the family was too cheap to buy that. What are you doing drawing on a TV set? No. Anyway, so uh, that being said, if you didn't have that, you had black and white. And again, 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 I used to enjoy these back in the early days of AMC. Yes. And, and of course now we have Turner, Turner Classics which don't show these things often enough and hardly ever in, in serial format you know like one after the other those days are pretty much gone too so I I remember this one quite quite well because I, I used to have a VHS tape with a bunch of Falcon films on it and I used to drag it out before it wouldn't play anymore and uh, so yeah I like Young Sanders to a point there's a few films where he kind of played light, 
you know, mm-hmm. he played light. And we, even when he was like uh, supposed to be a, a sleuth or a... Uh, yeah, he never really did that kind of hard-boiled thing. It was always just kind of breezy. And that's why he was a perfect thing for the Saint. Not mm-hmm. just thinking so much of Roger Moore's version, right, but right. thinking of the Vincent Price radio version. It's all kind of goofy in the area, like, oh, oh, oh. Well, oh, you've got a gun on me. Well, well, maybe I'll knock you over the head, and maybe that pretty girl over there will distract you with her bosoms. Oh, now I got you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny because a lot of more people seem to be familiar with George Sanders' work much later on in his career, and probably are unfamiliar with his earlier stuff like this. So it's yeah, you no, you you did you spoke to a good point. It's not really representative of uh, Chandler's farewell, my lovely, as much as uh, those who and I re- read it as much as those who may be familiar with the later versions, but it's a good starting off point. So uh, next up is Time to Kill, which is an adaptation of The High Window, but this time in the Michael Shane series with Lloyd Nolan as Shane substituting for Marlowe. 20th Century Fox never bothered to release this one a DVD or blue after dropping the first four of seven films starring likely snarky gumshoe Lloyd Nolan in volume one of a box set. We're like a good decade on. Where the hell's volume two? I love when they do crap like that. Just release it all if you're going to be cheap. So what's weirder is that it's hardly the end of the series because there's a ton of PRC films with Hugh Beaumont, which actually were released in the entire DVD, a 32-episode TV show with Mr. and Mr. North, and Creature from the Black Lagoon's uber-misogynistic Richard Denning. You know, I used to like him, but we started watching some stuff lately in some of these movies that he's in, and every time I was like, wow, he's a real dick. Mm. <laughs> if I'm hard to deal with. We found the character of Shane through the old Sherlock Holmes radio show, the longest run of which actually featured both Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce of the film series because it would always be announced at the end as following Holmes on air. It's a typical noir gumshoe series with a two-fisted Irish detective who tends to get in over his head. It's not bad, but no one in the film series is head and shoulders above it. This particular film, which you can at least view poking around some fairly mainstream corners online, makes the short stretch of swapping Chandler's Philip Marlowe out for a similarly down on his luck, if perhaps a bit more happy-go-lucky and humorous private dick named Machine. It's the exact same story as the Brasher de Bloom, which we'll address in a bit, and which was filmed more or less as written with Marlowe in place of mere five years later. Uh, Without giving too much away, it involves looking into the theft of a rear coin and winds up dealing with a rash of murders. It sounds a lot more generic than it actually is, but it's hard to dig into it too much without spelling the whole thing out. It's slight and impoverished wartime entertainment, yes, but if you're used to this sort of film and the stricter-than-usual financial and casting limitations of the day, it was the height of World War II, after all, and basically everybody that was of serviceable health was drafted or volunteered to go fight Hitler. It's amusing enough, and even in his final film as the character, Nolan's a very likable lead. The barely hour-long film moves along quite breezily. Nolan was mainly notable for playing Shane in all seven films under Fox, before the series moved to Bottom Feeders PRC, and also appeared in Noirs Somewhere in the Night, Street with No Name, and Lady in the Lake, which we'll get to shortly. Heather Angel was one of the more annoying ingenues of the era. <laughs> the stereotypical English rose, all virginal and hoity-toity, huffing and puffing like she's getting goosed throughout, like a church lady version of Sarah Jane Smith. For some reason, she wound up in many films of the era, from an early Lost Charlie Chan movie, and no less than six Bulldog Drummond films as his annoying fiancé, mm. to Hitchcock, Suspicion, and Lifeboat, Horror, The Undying Monster, and This Noir. For the life of me, I can't imagine what the appeal was, but some people really love her. One interesting bit player here is Dick Tracy himself, Ralph Bird, also of the SOS Coast Guard serial, though he's hardly heroic this time around. So, what's your take? Oh, I, I enjoyed this, and yeah. I do miss seeing 
the Lloyd Nolan, Michael Shane films. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people know Lloyd Nolan from, I would say, mid-70s, possibly early 80s television, where uh, now I, I, let me see if I can find a sound like without dragging people nuts, <laughs> um, that he was really good. This guy had a long freaking career, man, starting 35, at least that we were able as a film career. But he he would appear on TV shows uh, as doctors and uh, uh, assistant doctors. <laughs> I don't know why. Because he looked like a nice guy, maybe, you know? Um, <laughs> hell, an earthquake. Yes, that one. Yeah. He played a doctor. Uh, so <laughs> he also played older military men, which was interesting, or a federal agent. Actually, he's in The Girl Hunters, that great. Oh, that's a great one. That wouldn't explain as the main character. Yeah, but he always... Yeah, so people, they know that name. Lloyd Nolan, what is that? You know, ring a bell. You know, so like he probably appears in about 3,000. <laughs> it's an exaggeration, but about 3,000 uh, television shows, even in minor, minor roles. He had a, a very good, in his, old, his later career, very good, warm persona. Uh, even better and less grating than, uh, what's his name? Henry Morgan from Ash. Is it Harry? Wish SU part something similar, but Lloyd Nolan was much better at that. And I like when I discovered these early gumshoe films with Lloyd Nolan because you know he really carried himself well. You know the younger Lloyd Nolan really you know he had a thing going. Oh on. yeah, this is not a terrific movie. We're not highly recommending it, but it's fun and uh, you know it's one of those. No, but it's fun. It's a lot better than that Falcon one I just mentioned. <laughs> it's a lot better than the Falcon one. Yes, yes. Now we're going on to something completely different. Yes. So now, with Murder, My Sweet, 1944, they actually start directly adapting books of uh, Chandler. In this case, uh, it was adapted. It's an adaptation of and released in the UK as Farewell, My Lovely, and has Dick Powell as Marlowe. This is the first of the Marlowe adaptations to truly embody all the tropes of what the critics of Cahiers de Cinema, later become the many directors of the French Nouvelle Vague or New Wave, uh, had dubbed film noir. While Time to Kill in particular bore many of the visual flourishes, with all just a shadow and atmosphere foreboding, Murder My Sweet pulls out all the stops. A down on his luck put upon protagonists in and out of his depth, smoky femme fatales, misdirection and plot threads that dangle tantalizingly, only to be exposed as false trails, dead ends, or only some small part of the larger picture. No one can be trusted, everyone's implicated, perverse, tainted, a trope it shares with a later Italian giallo. Coming out of the war to end all wars with its terrific trench warfare and the long-term effects of chemical warfare, only to fall right back into perhaps an even worse war, one we entered almost too late, and the rugged persistence of a much embattled Britain side nearly lost. And then we discovered the camps, the mass graves, the atrocities from both the Nazis and the Russian communists, and the Japanese in a very different corner of the world, their hubris and sick sadism over Chinese, Korean, and Taiwanese targets paid back with a new terrible weapon that literally vaporized and mutated all those it targeted. America was sick at the soul and knew at last that there was no good guy, only bad guys of differing degree, and the B-films of this era reflected this in no uncertain terms. How many noir protagonists lost their identity, whether through a brutality-based amnesia, plastic surgery, or simply having their place taken by strangers during some absence or other? How many were fooled into trusting others, only to find them even more dangerous enemies than those they initially targeted? 
So where Time to Kill and The Brush of the Bloom were both based on the same Chandler story, here we get the second of three films based on the second of his adventures, Murder, My Sweet, previously made as The Falcon Takes Over and later remade with Robert Mitchum as Farewell, My Lovely. In some ways, it's a better film than the latter, more on point with the noir-era tropes and aesthetic than its later darker neo-noir remake. In other ways, elements fall flat. Can you believe, for example, Mike Mazursky as Moose Malloy after having seen Jack O'Halloran in the same role? I mean, he's big, but not in the same way. How about Claire Trevor as Mrs. Grail when you used to smoky vamp Charlotte Rampling? Or for that matter, Bob Cummings looked like Robert Montgomery with his dumpy body after seeing even an aging Robert Mitchum in the role. I mean, you see the point. But this was popular enough to kick off a minor craze for Chandler films, directly leading to a race among the majors to the rights for a Chandler story, and each one wound up filming their own. The Big Sleep for Warners, Lady in the Lake for MGM, the Allen Lab Veronica Lake film The Blue Dollar for Paramount, and the more proper remake of Time to Kill, The Brash of the Bloon for Fox. Edward Dimitrik is one of those names you often hear, but some see any decent films out of it. He's mainly notable for this film, another minor noir crossfire, and two late career pictures, the Bardo Connery Misfire Shalico, which we talked on shows for both of those people, Bardo and Connery, and the George Kennedy vehicle, The Human Factor. Montgomery was a song and dance man from a couple of old Busby Berkeley musicals, Footlight Parade, Dames, Gold Diggers in 1935, who wound up in noir, cornered, pitfall, cry danger, before falling into early television as a regular on shows like Zane Grey Theater and Four Star Playhouse. Claire Trevor was most notable as the boozy old saloon singer from Key Largo, which we talk about in our Bogart show, but of course was in a handful of other films of note, like How to Murder Your Wife with Jack Lemmon and Vernon Lisi, and other film noir like Born to Kill and Johnny Angel, but honestly she was no longer. Anne Shirley as the younger sister, Anne, was far more appropriately fetching, but had spent most of her time in Hollywood under other names like Dawn O'Day to No Real Acclaim. This was her last film. Bit player Miles Mander also appears, and he'd been in films as far afield as screwball comedy like The Mad Miss Matt and Four Jills in a Jeep, Boys on Adventure with Don Quixote, The Three Musketeers, The Man in the Iron Mask, and Tarzan's New York Adventure, women's novels like Wuthering Heights and The House of Seven Gables, even horror like Return of the Vampire, Phantom of the Opera, and Picture of Dorian Gray and The Scarlet Claw, the Holmes entry. Uh, he'd even done some pulp hero series installments like Enter Larsan Lupin and The Crime Doctor's Warning, so you can tell he got around. It actually is a decent film, though. So, what's your take? Oh, no, it's a, it's, it's a more than decent film. And, and any movie that opens up with the protagonist, blind, blindfolded or bandaged, because he's temporarily mm-hmm. blinded and in a smoky, darkly lit, uh, I think it was a uh, police station, uh, mm-hmm. being being grilled basically being grilled and with the camera set in such a way that it just picked up this cloud of smoke from a cigarette it's very it was very ever dimitric picture it was he was a journeyman filmmaker but it was it was a very european way to begin a movie like and uh, you often didn't see stuff like this Mm -hmm. until they started doing live television uh in america you know the the live American TV, uh, not the Hitchcock type stuff, but the like the thrillers and the you know the things that they used to do back in the uh, early 60s, late 50s. A lot of well-known filmmakers, like uh, Sidney Lumet, guys like that, mm-hmm. and a lot of well-known actors when they were really young appeared in these things. And you know, this is sort of like when the the BBC was shooting the Quatermass films live. Not those Quater Mass films, the BBC version. Uh, they were shooting these things live, and then just as they were, they were uh, transmitting them to people's homes. They were also 
catching them on these machines that were making terrible copies of them. And oh, the kinescopes, yeah. Kinescopes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, this is, this is a pretty good film for what it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, Mike Mazurs, Mike Mazurki, who, oddly enough, much later, was it the 70s? Somebody was kind to him and gave him two or three films. Like, it's this guy in the... Alaska with his with his friendly dogs. You remember these things? Oh gosh! You're not talking about like the Jack London adaptation. They call the wild we eat the dog, are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. Somebody. Uh, before the magical Lassie. Uh, <laughs> no, he he did these things. Oh, gosh. It was like a gentle bend kind of a thing. Sort of, sort of. I can't even find this on his on his CV, and I know I saw this. Oh, there you go. Challenge to be free. Oh, I remember that name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, yeah he's, he's like in the Canadian wild as a trapper, but he's actually a very uh, humane guy that wants to live in harmony with nature. And there are several of these things, but although you might only find reference to one or two of these things, not everything. Well, obviously they were big in the 70s because yeah. that was kind of the movement at the time. And that, I'm sure that's when I saw them back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and the guy was already in this... He was up there, and uh, so no, nice to see him in an early role. No, it's just, it's an interesting film. You don't really have to be a Dick Powell fan to like this movie. He 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 does take a bit of getting used to. Uh, he's not for everyone. Yeah. But the next film features Bogart. Yeah, because the thing about this film is that it is a noir. It feels very noir, and it's got a lot of its tropes, which is which makes it stronger in a lot of ways than the neo noir we'd see later. But you know, we've also got a lot of pretty weak actors involved, or weaker than ones that we would see in later iterations of the exact same stories. That's why it's kind of a mix. But you know, if you do like this kind of stuff, you'll probably enjoy it. So yes, the next one is a biggie. The Big Sleep, which from two years, 1945 and 1946, it was kind of split between two years. Humphrey Bogart. So mm-hmm. this is very likely my favorite Bogart film, and certainly my favorite among the films discussed this evening. We had done a whole show on Humphrey Bogart a couple months back. This classic was directed by the great Howard Hawks of His Girl Friday, Bull of Fire, To Have and Have Not, and The Thing fame. James Arnest, a man known for snappy, realistic dialogue and briskness of action. Filled with barely suppressed sex, this was as close to the times would allow to a pre-code film. Not quite a noir, but damn close to being one. The visual flair and serpentine misdirections of plot fit the bill. There are some variations from template. Our hero not only survives at the end, but comes out pretty much unscathed. It's a workaday situation for him. That's not very noir-like. Bogart, <laughs> seriously, no, you're Bogart, right. Right. he doesn't run afoul of a single femme fatale to his own destruction, noir style, but every single woman in the cast, from the Sternwood sisters to the bookstore clerk to a hot check girl and lady cab driver, is as horny as shit, and literally throwing themselves at our hero, who's both appreciative and ready for it, no bad consequences result. There's also some elements of the giallo. Given all the perversity and flawed character of most of the folks involved, the Sternwoods, the gangsters, the gamblers, the pornographers, blackmailers, and the plethora of double crosses and murders for anyone and everyone involved, however tangentially, but Bogart, he comes off very much in control of the situation, unlike another gumshoe he was favored for playing Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon. It's hardly double indemnity, much less the long goodbye in that respect. But the film is really, it had a delayed release with the end of the last war against fascism because, unfortunately, another one's clearly coming in this country soon. A lot of minor details suddenly felt out of date, like female cabbies, for instance. 
So Taggy and the Post to have and have not public fascination with the Bogart Bacall made the summer relationship, which these days would probably have ended his career and got him called a groomer, at the very least. And Warner's decided to re-edit the film slightly. Supposedly they emphasized their relationship and cut back on sexy younger sister Martha Vickers' time on screen, since it would have to be crazy to pay attention to Bagal for all her sass and sophistication when the stunning and quite oversexed Vickers was throwing herself at our hero. But the cuts don't really show this. I mean, a study of the changes between the two versions, because whether you get the DVD or the blue, both versions are there. They shows that they didn't really cut all that much of Vickers, despite what people say on online sources. Though what they did add was some extra Bacall material, like the infamous horse racing chat. What did change for sure was pacing, by removing several more linear bridging sequences and a long, boring chat between Marlowe and the cops. The film suddenly becomes much more snappy, if a bit hard to follow. It's nice to have the 1945 version, which apparently was only shown to troops overseas during the war, but chances are you'll only watch it once and then stick to the accepted release version for any future visitations. Given her standout presence here, it's surprising that Vickers really didn't do much of note otherwise. The Falcon in Mexico, The Mummy's Ghost, and Captive Wild Women are about the best of her barely dozen roles. Beady-eyed Elisha Cook Jr., a veteran of a hundred films or more, drops by briefly only to be poisoned to death inside of a single scene. A decades later remake would attempt to spell out what Hawks had to heavily hint at and allude to here. But did that make it any sexier or sleazier, much less better? I actually thought quite the opposite. This one's a classic for a reason. It feels strangely contemporary for all its 40s slang and fashions, and it's well worth your time if by some chance you haven't yet indulged. I really love this film. Well, I, I always, I think I, as I may have mentioned in, the, in our Bogart show, I always found it interesting that, yo, so here, here's, here's a guy who's been playing bit parts, villains, scumbags, baddies, occasionally gets a lead, and luckily enough to vault over to leading roles because I have no fucking idea because mm-hmm. he was a unusually ordinary looking guy. He was so unusually ordinary that you would notice him. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was unusually ordinary, but he was very <laughs> noticeably so physically. I know exactly yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, and, and then... And then they realized, for some reason, this guy's got it. You know, he's, he's, he, people are going to see these parts, these films. Like, why does this guy have more key value? But suddenly he did. The funniest thing about Bogart, and I don't think I mentioned it in the Bogart show, is that he's got this reputation for being tough and two-fisted. But if you watch his films, he really is kind of passive and stands there a lot and gets beat on. He doesn't really. He's not really that two-fisted. He's more like a punching bag. No, so. Yeah, I agree. And and also he had a he had a bit of a probably his normal speaking pattern. He had a bit of a I wouldn't say a lisp, but he had a bit of a yeah. There's some kind of deformation to his lip. I forget how he got it. We we talked about it in the last show. We talked. We talked about it in that show. Yeah. And, and so his 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 vocal delivery came out a certain way. And I think he learned how to speak lines where it came out more smoother and natural. Yeah. But anyway, that was a good film. It's a good film. So uh, next up is Lady in the Lake. Robert Montgomery of Hitchcock's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which the big man made for the aforementioned Mrs., the always stunned with Carol Lombard, as Philip Marlowe. Famous gimmick film, which, like Bogart's Dark Passage, is filmed entirely from the point of view of the protagonist, in this case, Robert Montgomery's Marlowe. It made sense given the fact that the director was the lead, none other than Robert Montgomery, in the last of his few largely forgotten directorial attempts. But 
far from what that or the film's reputation would suggest, it actually works and quite well at that. The film's also odd for not having a proper soundtrack, more of a barely scored and sporadic aggregation of group chants. So maybe every 10 minutes, you hear about five guys or a quartet of girls going, ooh, whoa, for about 10 seconds, and then back to nothing but dialogue and foley. The story is very much Chandler, i.e. not far removed from the big sleep, with twists and turns and everyone seemingly implicated, if not in the initial crime under investigation, then in other areas like blackmail or what they used to call moral turpitude. Everyone's in it for the money, everyone's sleeping around, everyone's scheming against everyone else. And if they're in some position of authority, watch out. They're the most dangerous and worst offenders. It's very true to life. Everyone remembers this one for the gimmick forgetting just how well it actually comes off, particularly for such an extended period. Remember, Dark Passage is only for a half an hour or less doing first-person view. This one runs nearly three times that. Better, the acting is decent, and the story is far too engaging to dismiss as some cheap William Castle-style gimmick flick. Lloyd Nolan, once again, who effectively played Marlowe as Michael Shane in Time to Kill, gets a small part as one of the cops Marlowe runs afoul of. And one of the major femme fatales here is none other than Mrs. Steve Allen, Jane Meadows, for those of you who remember old 50s game show and talk shows. Bad girl Audrey Totter of the ghost film The Unsuspected and Noir's Tension and The Postman Always Rings Twice, not to mention live-action Disney Cheese Fest, The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again, rounds out the cast. It's a good film. It's much better than you would think from reading anybody's review of it. I definitely recommend it. It was. I remember when I first saw this, and I was like, what is this? And then, you know, there's very few, but there's a few scenes where Montgomery and, and another character reflected in the mirror. That's about the only time you get to see them. It's all time you see them in the very beginning and then when you see them in the mirror. Yes. Right. So you got to give credit where it's due because he convinced, you know, he convinced MGM to do this, number one. I'm not a huge fan of POV, not even POV porn. And, uh, <laughs> Kid? I'm not kidding. And 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 it's like so I want to see a story. You know? Mm-hmm. Even, even, even it's a crappy story. I want to see a story. I don't want to peel me. I don't like POV anyway. Anyway, so Yeah, I hate all those first person video games. They're just ridiculous. Yeah, there's very few of those as far as video games go. I'm not a huge fan of POV, but I will admit it's if as far as video games go. There's a few. But anyway, it's a very interesting it's not a gimmick film. It's it no, it no. and people call it like it is, but no, it's it's almost a distracting gimmick, but it's not a gimmick film. It's an unusual movie with a uh, it's almost creepy at times because the way it's shot and because if people were not familiar with the character that he's playing mm-hmm. and that they're watching a gumshoe film, you know, a a, a noir, a, you know, a private detective, etc., etc., etc. People might be thinking they're watching a film about a guy who's like stalking somebody. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, like a slasher film, like yeah, because they do a lot of that first-person shoot for that right. for the killer. This could have been an antece- you know, antecedent, you know, just like the earliest possible version. We know such a thing, but it wasn't that. It's 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 unique. There were a few of these. They actually made money with this, but it's hard to find nowadays. I think you have to look around to find it. But it's definitely well worth viewing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Next up, The Brasher Doubloon, uh, 1947. It's an adaptation of and released in the UK as The High Window with George Montgomery as Marlowe. So despite being the exact same story as the Michael Shane film Time to Kill, the difference between the two is like night and day. 
from being a breezy, talky, no-budget, B-list programmer to an A or at least a B-plus production, everything is completely different. Lighting, acting, even scripting is more taut with gorgeous sets. I mean, you have to see the Murdoch house to believe it. An atmosphere, the gusting summer winds and noir shadows that Mark Marlowe's opening visit to his prospective client set one hell of a mood. Even a middling looker like this Nancy Guild, who's also a fellow noir somewhere in the night in the Abner and Costello Fright Fest Meet the Invisible Man, mm-hmm. comes off nearly as flirtatious and innuendulated as the many smoking hot ladies of the Big Sleep, which we enthused about over in our Humphrey Bogart show. And a Joe Average-like cowboy actor, Lloyd Montgomery, who has a voice disturbingly reminiscent of Casey Kasem, who doesn't bear half the personal presence of a Lloyd Nolan, he can still acquit himself quite well thanks to the steady hands, working script, lighting, and direction here. Speaking of which, said director, a John Brom, who left Germany under the rise of Hitler to work his first films in England. If you have those old Fox horror box sets, He's in there delivering iffy films like the 1944 Lodger and Hangover Square, and later gives the Vincent Price Cheese Fest The Mad Magician. So it's hard to say where he pulled this off-sumptuous, atmospheric, and visually stunningly expressionistic brash of Dubloon out from. Like the leads, this would seem to be his sole notable work, but hey, it works. Remember the two Mrs. Carols from our Bogart show? It's the same deal. The director, at that time, Peter Godfrey, was hardly of note otherwise, but damn, what a film, and I really liked this one. Oh, yeah, I remember this one. Very, very, I wouldn't say difficult to see. You have to look around. You might find it. George Montgomery, more of a thick leading guy, and, um, I mean, physically. And uh, it's funny, he his last known films, he was directing, both directing and acting in Italian Euro crime and Italian World War II knockoffs filmed in Yugoslavia. Do you remember those things? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I've seen some yeah, of them yeah. Yeah, so when we did the Eurospy show and all that. Yeah, yeah. George Montgomery is like latter career was spent doing that, but and the occasional Philippines, but mainly he was in Yugoslavia. But back in the day, he was they continually trying to break him as a star. And he never really quite got there. But this is a very good film. Yeah, so I was going to say, if he was thick-set later on, like that canon sort of thing, he certainly wasn't here. No, no, not canon thick-set, but you know, it was just thick. Well, no. George Kennedy, maybe. But even so, if that's what you're talking about, he yeah. wasn't like that here. George Kennedy. That was later in his career. No, 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 <laughs> don't, don't, that's right. But he, he is a little thick. No, not slim. Oh, no, he's definitely not slender. <laughs> but you got to remember, all, 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 all these... All these gumshoes, all these private detectives, they drank, man. Oh, yeah. So, you know, yeah, puts on some weight. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> it happens. No, I'm just surmising here. I, I don't know why. You just appear to be a rather thick detective. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I, I like this film. Uh, you you seem to like it much more than I do, which is fine. It was kind of a surprise. You know, you, you weren't yes. expecting it. Yes. And it's like, wow, this is actually rather good. I agree. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a bit of a surprise. And next, we're going to go on to a film that I had the poster on my wall for years. And you might know why. I'm not sure. I don't know. I've seen the poster. So, yes, the next one up. Is 1969's Marlowe, which is an adaptation of The Little Sister, with James Garner as Marlowe. That's all I know about it. I was named I'll see it. Oh, really? No, the poster from MGM <laughs> is, 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 is actually pretty cool. You can find it online. It says, Welcome to Marlowe Country. It was this black and white shot. 
and there's a, a banner on the top that says James Garner, Gil Hanukkah, Carol O'Connor, Rena Moreno, and uh, some other fucking guy. And it had this woman with her leg held up high, like taking a removed stocking. Nice. And it was kind of, you know, it's 69, so it's like, mm-hmm. well, let's be a little permissive. They might have been copping from the graduate or something, even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I know you're no fan of James Garner. It's okay. Well, but, you know, he's just the rubber face fool. I'm, I'm, I can't no. picture him taking on any role that where I take him seriously. Give me, give me, give me, give me some leeway. <laughs> My I father saw, loved the Rockford Files. I never got it. I still don't I, get it. I'm not going to say it's the greatest thing since cheese. But <laughs> Paul Bogart, who directed this, comes from a really interesting career as a director. Like he, he did like Carousel, Kiss Me, Kate. Yeah, those. <laughs> And then, then he hits Marlowe, and then he starts doing a couple of unusual films. Uh, he did the very strange Peter Sellers, Tell Me Where It Hurts, and we're, we're not going to talk too much about that. <laughs> but he also worked a lot in TV, Sanford and Son. That's what I'm going for, you. All in, yeah, all in the family. The screenplay is by the way inconsistent Sterling Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Didn't he do Batman scripts? (laughs) He did Batman scripts, but he also did. He did. In Gilligan's Island, I think. No, he did did (laughs) weird shit, though. He did, like, The Killer Elite, The the Enforcer, The Towering Inferno, (laughs) Telephone. Probably one of Charles Bronson's best pictures. Telephone's great, yeah. Yeah. We took that during our Bronson show, yeah. And the Donald Pleasance one. Right. And then he did uh, Sylvester Stallone's Over the Top. Almost ruined Stallone's career, that bastard. Uh, <laughs> well, he had many pictures that almost ruined his career, like Stopping My Mom Will Shoot, Oscar, Cobra. Uh, anyway. <laughs> we, we did a Stallone show, too. Anyway, so since you didn't see this, pretty much. So James Garner, everyday, luggable guy with the edge. He drinks too much. Hey, doesn't everybody? <laughs> so he's investigating a uh, ice pick murder. Uh, where's that Jallo connection? Uh-oh. So, women are the, the targets, which is interesting. So, okay, I'm going to take a step back here from what I just spoke of. So, you have a guy, a director who primarily works in television, doing a, uh adaptation of uh, Raymond Chandler's The Little Sister. And so, it's 1969, time of permissiveness. Let's just get a little funky here. And they seem to get kind of funky. And... and they, they, the problem with this film has always been, unless there's another version, it always skirted with darker, and it never quite crossed over. Because there's, there's murders of women, two or three different women show up at Marlowe's office, hiring him to investigate a crime or a crime to be committed, or their boyfriend who's a, a thug. Are two of these women the same woman? I won't, I won't give it away. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting. Rita Moreno, West Side mm-hmm. Story. And uh, the electric company and stuff. <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty hot in this Sharon. Hey, you Sharon guys. In this. Uh, Gail Honeycutt. Yes, yes, yes. There's a lot of people. But they, Ken Toby is a police sergeant in this, you know, from Howard Hawks, the thing. But Carol mm-hmm. O'Connor is a pre RT riffing on, on Rod Steiger in the, in the heat of the night, kind of like pain in the ass guy. Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. yes, that one, is in this as Winslow Wong, who 
<laughs> that is the most bizarre fucking. He wasn't even famous, and he became famous for a cameo. Wow. He was he was working either had just done or was working on the Green Hornet mm-hmm. and had not yet still not on DVD or blue. Really? Yeah, still waiting for it. Oh. So and, and so he had not gone back to Hong Kong yet, so he was still trying I think he was trying to sell what was that David Carradine series? Come on. Kung Fu, yeah. yeah. He had written that for himself. Bruce Lee had written that for himself, was still trying to sell that to Hollywood for T V. And so he was hanging around for a while. So this is the film that in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in a Very Long Fucking Movie. What was that thing called? There's a scene where Brad Pitt as anonymous stunt guy who meets the Manson Slater meets Bruce Lee in, uh, <laughs> and a, b- a bunch of stunt people in the Hollywood parking lot. Back lot. Sorry, back lot. And Bruce had, is shooting Marlowe. And so it was sort of like whose dick is bigger kind of thing. And so, you know, that's a weird movie. We should talk about that one time because I like it and I hate it. <laughs> that's the case with a lot of Tarantino movies. It's like, no, like in the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Right. So anyway, Bruce as Winslow Wong. Why is Lewis talking about Bruce? Because it's like epic moment. Bruce as James Garner's kicking back. He's got a bottle of booze. And yeah, he's a hard drinking guy. You might like this one because Garner's a little bit rougher than usual. So he's kicking back, he's sitting at his desk, he just had a bad day. Oh, two or three girls came through there, and they're like, I want you to do something. Yeah, I'm not stupid. I'm just stupid. I'm not stupid, I'm just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so Bruce comes in, and he has yet to perfect his English. So it's, it's, it's highly accented. And he's like, I come here to do something for you, but I come here to warn you. And he kicks the shit out of the guy's office, nearly beats the shit out of James Garner, but... He also stupidly misses a leap and goes out the window. <laughs> wow. That, that, that's like, wow. A lot of people remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird movie. It's, it's, I personally, I would have to assume that, and it's an assumption on my part, uh, that there might have been a lot more to this film that, like, this, no, no, we're going to cut this, or no, no, we're going to, we got to pull back a little bit. This might have been a lot of tampering. And they didn't know how to sell it. So then at the time, they finally started selling this. It was less a Raymond Chandler, a less a noir, and more of a, let's let's make it a counterculture film. Interesting. Yeah. You make me want to see this. <laughs> I think you should. It's not horrible. So, yeah. Long Goodbye is next. Yes. Apparently, star Elliot Gould had been somewhat blacklisted for being a demanding putz on a prior picture, which may explain why he was married to Bab Streisand, two peas in the pod and birds with a feather, apparently. We had covered this primo neo-noir for our Elliot Gould show to much love. Recent revisitation shows more nuances for good and for bad. The 70s neo-noir revival was a very different animal to his late 40s, early 50s forebear, despite the obvious affection that inspired a handful of directors like Polanski, Altman, Sidney Pollock, and Brian De Palma to craft cinema in what by then was a decades-old style. What distinguished the neo-noir from classic noir is that while it still involves put-upon heroes, manipulative femme fatales, and situations well beyond the protagonist's depth and understanding, that what few cultural mores remained to keep some measure of decorum and commonality in the post-war era had been repudiated and not only shown false, but openly rejected by the 70s, though Mm -hmm. it honestly would become much, much worse than the last two decades, this last five years teetering on the scale of the collapse of Western civilization, thanks to some right-wing lunatics' open embrace 
the principles of fascism and totalitarian communism out of sheer misdirected hate of their peers rather than the rich and corporate who pull the strings and towards whom we should all be bringing the torches and pitchforks. Folks, wait, wait for that show. It's coming soon. Yeah, we will be doing a state of the state show very soon. <laughs> <laughs> the result of this is an ironic mockery underpinning the whole affair, set against a far grimmer darkness, a more profound sense of hopelessness and futility than films like Laura or Double Indemnity could ever evoke. Nobody wins or even calls a draw. Everyone loses. These films posit the only sane response is a bemused attachment, a clowning in the face of inevitable death and destruction, whether the protagonist be a hapless clown like Ellie Gould's Marlowe, a grinning ghoul like Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, or a tired representation of the old guard America like Robert Mitchum in Farewell, My Lovely in the Big Sleep. It's not much of a defense mechanism, much less a weapon, but at least laughing at the situation prevents a nervous breakdown. On the surface, it may seem amusing to see Gould's unconcerned, almost Columbo-like sad sack disheveledness stumbling between bizarre L.A. types like his hippie neighbors, drunken John Houston-like writers and abusive, blatantly gay mobsters with a cocked eyebrow and smart-ass retort at the ready, but with more attention to the picture as a whole, it's incredibly dark, even despairing, where a surface reader might see it as a wistful, nostalgic for an earlier time, or as some have said a sort of salute to bygone cinema which it really isn't unless to say how out of date all that is a funeral speech rather than a laudatory celebration it's an excellent film though Gould is great here and as i said last time around the only altman film i ever actually liked oh there's a few robert altman films i enjoy hopefully not nashville (laughs) yeah i actually like nashville do you really (laughs) wow shut up but, but, no, I, I, no. There's a few I enjoy. Uh, there's there's a few. One day I will figure out. Like Quartet. Wow. That was the Paul Newman post-apocalyptic. Paul Newman's version of Zardoz. Put it that way. <laughs> uh, if wow. you guys haven't seen Quartet, wow. Uh, I I don't know if it's a recommendation or a bewarement. Anyway, um, <laughs> but the long goodbye. See, you know, okay, seventy-three. Mash has happened, and uh, yo, mm. Elliot. Elliot's a really good actor, mm-hmm. and 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 a counterculture icon. And yeah, and, and you know his 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 close his close wingman is, is Donald Sutherland. They did quite a few films together, and we did shows on both of them. <laughs> but they got in trouble because they they would support, and I'm not going to make mm-hmm. a statement uh, pro or con about this. They would support groups that they felt like they needed to support. So it's cool, but it also affected their your hiring stance mm-hmm. at some point, you know, for films. Uh, but it seemed like Elliot seemed to like get over that much more quickly than Donald. It took Donald a few years, but then, you know, fucking guy was ace and swear. Both these guys did amazing work over the years. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. This movie is a strange film for Robert Altman because it's, it's almost like, mm-hmm. Like you see a lot of Robert Altman films, and like I don't want to watch this. It's gonna like fourteen people having dialogues. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not like that. It's not like that at all. It's 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 actually a very good, probably one of Elliot's best roles. Not the, but one of the best roles. And 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 it's got a really wacko fucking supporting cast yep. from uh, featuring a lot of filmmakers like Sterling Hayden, Mark Rydell. Mm-hmm filmmaker and there's people uncredited and you, you easily rec- recognize Carradine Schwarzenegger so before uh, the uh, bodybuilding film uh, yeah before Stay Hungry and all that Stay Hungry before Stay Hungry which I think is 77 maybe Pumping Iron yeah Pumping Iron 
Jim Bouton, a well-known ball player, is also in this. Uh, Henry Gibson. Bless Henry Gibson from laughing. Because... I hate Illinois Nazis. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The Blues Brothers. From the Blues Brothers, right? Because Robert Altman recognized Henry Gibson, who well-known from being on laughing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Altman gave him a fantastic role in Nashville, the film you hate. But <laughs> uh, so, so the femme fatale in this film is always the kind of weirder link because it's Nina Van Palen. Yeah. And with a name like that, you would think she's a Keith Richards girlfriend, but she wasn't. So <laughs> that would have been better. I like Nina Pallenberg. <laughs> yeah, it's not Nina Van Pallenberg. It's, it's the other one. She's not horrible, but yeah, it's not really a femme fatale to me. She's not horrible. She had a bizarro career because she was a baroness. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she's still alive at 89. Wow. She, wait, I don't know how you'd say this. She was like a person from the... The hoi polloi, the rich demi monde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was alleged, alleged to be a symbiotic relationship with Howard Hughes, like a friend, like a girl. I don't know. <laughs> One of her last roles, gosh, she would have been up there, was appearing in The Hoax, which I don't even know existed. It was a Lassie Hallstrom, that guy, a film about Howard Hughes starring Richie Gere. And, like, everybody else who wasn't working at the time. And so, anyway, so Nina Van Pallet, she's kind of the weak link in this thing. But, yeah, yeah. see you for Elliot, people. You want to fill in, like, if you only know Elliot from uh, Elliot Gould. From his comedies, MASH, whatever. MASH, or when when uh, Handsome George re- revived his career with the uh, the break-in movies, both those things. Uh, Ocean 11, or it is. Ocean's 10, 11, 12, 13, yeah. 14, Ocean's 21. <laughs> And they had Elliot in there as, like, the older, wise-ass, grandfatherly guy. Yep. If that's all you know Elliot Gould from, we, we did a show on Elliot. Mm-hmm. But really, Elliot, as Philip Marlowe in this, is definitely worth checking out. Definitely. Yeah. And now we come to a double feature from Sleepy-Eyed Mars Stand by Robert Mitchum, who we also did a whole show on last year, here in his Twilight Years neo-noir revival. The first of these is arguably the best of the 70s neo-noirs, Alongside The Last Goodbye, and of course, mainstream sources would inevitably cite the overrated Chinatown as such, but honestly, I don't think it's even Jack Nicholson's best film, much less Polanski's, but that's neither here nor there. We'd spoken to Farewell My Lovely Nolison three times, with a brief mention in our Stallone show. He hits an early bit part here, just like Schwarzenegger did as one of the game officers thugs in The Last Goodbye, and more substantive discussions in our Charlotte Rampling and Robert Mitchum shows. As I said earlier, this is very much a statement about an America that no longer exists, a generation whose mores were considered very much out of date in a new, much darker world. Mitchum's Marlowe may still have been kicking around and not so old as to be completely unviable, just without agency, floating derelicts without rudder or propellant crashing about on a choppy sea. Mitchum was an ideal choice for the role, as unlike most other classic noir protagonists, Bar Bogart, he always came up as simultaneously two-fisted and a hapless punching bag, seemingly tough guy who seldom actually won a fight, a protagonist detached enough from his own life to remain bemused and sarcastically cocky even while he's getting worked over, tricked, gaslighted, screwed over, and failing at whatever task he takes on through sheer poor judgment. Like the long goodbye, the plot is convoluted with any number of twists and turns, false leads, and plenty of misdirection before all is revealed in the literal last moments of the film. 
everyone involves a double-crosser. All that seems to be true is a half-truth, if not a blatant lie. And who better to serve as the man-killing vamp than smoky real-life decadent Charlotte Rampling, who again, we did a show on. I've been thinking about it ever since you uncrossed your legs. Damn thing's always wrapped around your neck. Mm, damn. <laughs> grumpy old John Ireland of House of Seven Corpses and Satan's Cheerleaders stars as a grumpy, typically corrupt cop. The Sentinel Sylvia Miles and Omega Man's Anthony Zerby show up. And Sly Stallone, Joe Spinell, and Cheryl Rainbow Smith all get bit parts, but nobody cares. It's all Mitchum's show until Rampling shows up, and even thereafter, at least when she's off screen. It's in neo-noir and dark as shit, but less intrinsically despairing than Altman's last goodbye, and for me, that gives this one the edge. It's 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 really good. You know, I, I, I don't even want to think about how old was, was Robert Mitchum when he made this in 75. Uh, he had a long life, bless him. And this this is just like a really good movie. It's a tough movie though. It's like it's like why is it tough? Because it's like a mid to late seventies punk rock already happened. You know, it's happening and counterculture came, went, came. It's it's always coming and going. Mm-hmm. So what do we do when we try to revive this like noir character from like books written in the forties and et cetera? So we get this guy who's already up there, you know, Robert Mitchum, who's, I'm not going to argue, is a, a terrific powerhouse, you know, most of the time as of an actor. And the guy really brought his aid game, and they surrounded him by, like, sleazy plot, at character actors doing their aid game, which mm-hmm. these kind of things is not that often, mm-hmm. you know, that a character actor come on and do their aid, bring their aid game. Mm-hmm. You know, usually like, I'm getting paid, let me do my lines, get the fuck out. But no everybody's on board. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this film, I think we mentioned before, is they originally wanted Richard Burton to play this part. Yeah, Richard, Rich, Richard Burton. Really? It would have been a very different wow. picture if we could keep his eyes open. That would have been a very different picture. Around this time, Dick Burton was having some issues. <laughs> so, uh, and they, they may have been why they, they said, you know what? Who's next? There you go. Was he under the table, or married to Liz, or divorcing Liz, or married again to Liz? I don't know. Seventy, seventy-five, seventy-six. But it would have been an interesting film. It would have been a different film, and and it would have been uh, probably with his uh, celebrated histrionics. Hey, I like Richard Burton. I've been pushing for a Burton show for years, but yeah, I get it. I get it. But none of this stuff is terrible. But I, I can imagine some of the line delivery on this one is, like, not going to work. I mean, how much worse can you get putting Richard Harris there? <laughs> or Harris, yes, or yeah. Harris. Okay, okay. Same idea, the histrionics, the, the clipped accent. Yes, we got a lot of that. We got a lot of that. <laughs> the drunkenness or other substances, whatever the case may be. <laughs> the thing. But this is, it's a, it's a terrific film. It's a terrific throwback to a kind of movie they did not make. And the strange choice to make the sequel take place in contemporary times is mind-blowing. Yeah. So next up is The Big Sleep. Once again, Mitch and Ms. Marlowe, the other one was such a success that they decided to finance another one. Michael Winner was best known for his work with Charlie Bronson, who we not only spoke to in our Canon Films show, but did a whole show on Per Se. And I don't mean for two or three films here. Chattel's Land, The Mechanic, The Stone Killer, Death Wish 1, 2, and 3, and Appointment with Death. It's more than half of Bronson's 70s and 80s career, which seemed to be under the helm of winter. He also did a few other films of note, namely The Sentinel, which I always loved, 
and firepower with if it does not fit you must acquit oj simpson as well as the weird marlon brando mr james ghost picture the nightcomers but such diversions were few and far between one such was this cheap looking television quality nice shot on video lou grade remake of the big sleep which brought mitchum together with jimmy stewart oliver reed who we did a show on joan collins and third-rate Western regular Richard Boone of the Laura Gemser Shogun knockoff the Bushido Blade, and the John Wayne stinker Big Jake, I yonder stand, come here, dog, uh, <laughs> with a bunch of no-name bit players like Sarah Miles from Antonioni's Blow Up and the Kinski Reed Venom, Candy Clark from The Man Who Fell to Earth, Larry Cohen's Q, Amityville 3D, and that terrible late 80s remake of The Blob. Oh, and the Christy Swanson Buffy the Vampire Slayer in her apotheosis, Vanilla Ice is cool as ice. Yo, drop that zero and get with the hero. It's a far cry from the huge Starfucker project we used to discussing from Grade, which you can hear on many of our shows like the Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland ones, but his M.O. is hiring all manner of established stars from around the globe, both past and present, and cramming them into a fairly insubstantial picture, which is usually about three hours long, sold mainly on their walk-on roles, but this it just feels kind of cheap. About the only advantage you get by refilming what was already a highly sexual innuendo-laden classic with Bogart is the more permissive mores of the 70s allowing certain things to be more spelled out. The ridiculously over-the-top Clark goes nude for a few shots. The pornographic photograph-wielding blackmail turns out to be gay, etc., etc. But the film is far less engaging. Both the acting and filming are much drier and duller. Even Mitchum, who delivered strong, if arguably cipher-esque performances for both the Yakuza and Farewell, My Lovely, seems less invested, if not wholly disinterested here. Every other time the two came up, I'd call this one a real stinker, if not a complete lost. And that's not entirely true, if you're into the darker, more impoverished feel of 70s British film. But even compared to, say, Revenge, The Devil Within, or Pete Walker, or Norman J. Warren film, both of whom we've done shows on, this feels rather grotty and dull. And by Michael Winter's standards, he must have been asleep at the wheel. I've always been fascinated with the advertising uh, on the posters, DVDs, Blu-rays, etc., that they don't mention Mike Oliver Reed's name. Yeah. And Oliver Reed was and is a selling point. It's very strange. So Mitchum was 60 at the time of this uh, filming. So it made him 57, let's say, for around my lovely. So still youngish. He looks, in three years later, so much older. So, so we talked about a lot of things with the last film, but this one uh, features themes of Incest, pornography, mm-hmm. uh, homosexuality, which is not a big thing. Oh, it was Dan. But Dan, uh, the Eddie Morris character, Oliver Reed's Eddie Morris characters, kind of like a thinly veiled crane mm-hmm. kind of thing going on there. Colin Blakely it was really a thing at the, around that time period. So, I don't know. If, uh, what's weird about this film, Lewis says, the fact that Beloved film idol, James Stewart, yes, Jimmy Stewart, is is the guy who Marlowe meets in his hacienda, his castle, whatever. And you got the feeling that the agent, James Stewart, is like banging his granddaughter. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not more, it's more than a feeling. And he's in a wheelchair besides everything else. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> stuff going on here that's like, I don't know. Him being that we're very well familiar with. Michael Winters. Now you say he's not on his A game here. He's not. But Michael Winters certainly had like a dark streak. He was a sleazy fuck. And 
I'm assuming, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, just by comments made by cast and crew, I picked up on this. This first of all, this bizarre cast. But when you watch the film, you're like, but why did the first film, which did so well and got good press, mm-hmm. totally threw out the window of the fact that it took place in the 40s and this one takes place in the 70s? Uh, hello? You could have just as easily incorporated all these weird themes without changing the entire... Marlowe's driving a Porsche now, right? And he's got this cool jacket, you know, and he's and everybody talks about porn and, and there's naked girls. and Yeah, but you could have had that in the other one. You did have that in the other one. It's just, like, strange. Uh, Sarah Miles, who, you know, uh, she was a thing. And Richard Boone, yeah, you mentioned him, and Candy Clark, Everett Fox, you know, really good actor. John Mills, really good actor. I mean, you know, Stuart Oliver Reed, Harry Andrews, Richard Todd, old school British guy, James Donald, another old school British guy. There's a lot of good people in this film. Sometimes they're only in it for a few minutes, but it's not a film. I can say you say, like, oh, you should see this movie because of the Philip Marlowe character or, or even Mitchum. It's it's a pretty weird friggin' film, so you might want to check it out. Yeah, there's a reason that they put it as the uh, B picture on the Blu-ray of Fair One My Lovely, because they knew they couldn't sell it by itself. Could be, <laughs> could be. Um, so as of now, um, there is a well, neither one of us has seen this. I believe. Well, we can't see it yet because it's for next year. It's for next year, and uh, Neil Jordan of all people is directing a film called Marlowe, starring Liam Neeson. And the cast <laughs> is interesting. We have Diane Kruger, Jessica Lange, Alan Cummings, Danny Houston, Carl Meany, etc., etc. He was supposed to do this with another director based on the Black Eyed Blonde. And it was one of these uh, continuing Philip Marlowe books. And I think that someone saw the... Uh, possible idea that this might actually be a good thing if we could set it in the 50s and as far as i know right now it's being set in the 1950s which would be very interesting but again it's new it's coming out and uh liam neeson i just hope they try for some of the old feel and noir-esque feel uh, because i notice a lot of movies like they come out like belfast where it feels too <sighs> contemporaneous i hate to say that because it's supposed to be a period piece but the way that the film is shot, I don't know if it's not the digital quality or what, uh, it doesn't feel period to me. It's, it's got a very different... It would for something made maybe in the 70s. Well, I haven't seen anything from Neil Jordan in a long time, so I was... Oh, yeah, it's been ages. He's not the guy that was originally going to do it, so I don't know what happened or whether that's still the thing, but still, it's still going to be made. So I, th- I think Liam can do it. He knows how to do it, when to do it, when to turn it on and off. And so he could be very interesting. Yes, a Marlowe hits almost 6'7". But <laughs> he's a big guy. Uh, but uh, I'd be interested in seeing that. So that's all we have, really, right? That is it. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on the films of Philip Marlowe. If you'd like to contact us here, comment suggestions or you're a filmmaker musician who'd like to join us in here, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1 or our website weirdscenes1.wordpress.com We are also on Twitter 
at Weird Scenes 1. And of course, you can follow everything else on thirdeyescinema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes at itunes.apple.com. Just search out Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes inside the Goldmine Podcast. But if you need the ID, it's 553-402-044. We're also on Spotify. We're on Amazon Podcasts. Once again, just search us out. Weird Scenes in the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So next up, I believe we discussed a couple things. I think we're going to be doing our State of the State show that we have done a couple of them previously, talking about contemporary issues and life in general. <laughs> uh, yes, we, we are going to be doing that next. We've done a few of these over the years. Yes. Most recently during the Germanic COVID COVID, we did COVID shows, and we did, like, oh, my God, is a maniac in the White House shows. And yes. <laughs> so this one is bound to piss people off. So whether you like Democrats or whether you like Republicans or whether you like the Russians or whether you like the Ukrainians, I think we're going to speak our minds, just piss everybody off. <laughs> but, but this is not for the reason of doing that, because things need to be said. Yeah. And the big the big enemy of everyone is disinformation. Yes, that's for sure. And you can't blame Facebook. You can't blame Twitter. You can't blame this. You have to blame yourself for believing bullshit. Yeah, very true. You know, it's, it's what it comes down to. And what the hell happened to fucking common sense? So... That's going to be a really interesting show to look forward to. We're going to be recording it soon, and then we have some other ideas coming up. And uh, new and improved. Yes, one of the ones on tap for sure is going to be the films of Roman Polanski. I'm sure that'll raise a few eyebrows as well. Yes. Yes. Here's a film we're going to do on 70 satanic cult films. Yes, I really want to do that. It's guys, I know you're probably saying, "Oh my God, there's so many." We're keeping it to the 70s because it kind of arrows a town number one, and there's <laughs> yeah. a lot in the 70s. And we're not obviously not going to mention everything, but there's some really, really good ones in there. Yeah, it was definitely the time period for that because people were discovering new things and going for alternate religions. And after Altamont, they, a lot of people went to the dark side just to check things out. Yeah. Plus, the Church of Satan was a big thing. 66 was established. So. Yeah, and actually, I guess, being the uh, subject matter, I could probably even mention that LaVey film. Satanus. That was mass. Satanus, yeah. We are, and there'll probably be a few titles we already mentioned, like during our Peter Fonda show, Race with the Devil. Race with the Devil, The Devil's Reign from the Shatter Show. The Reign from the Shatter uh, Show, but... Um, there's a bunch of Satan's Cheerleaders, Satan's School for Girls, uh, Initiation of Sarah. There's tons. Enter the Devil. And even on the X-rated front, there's <laughs> one or two... No, no, he laughs. No, but there's like the devil within her. Wow, is that creepy? There's, there's a couple of pictures out there that are like, oh man, oh no. So, <laughs> so uh, definitely, it, that's it's one to look forward to. So yeah, good times coming. That's it. So uh, we hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be doing the next one shortly. All right. So uh, we'll see you soon.
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some harder and lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the comedian, the 
career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What's this? Is recording? Hello. Hello. Do you hear me? Yes, I do. What's up? How you been for three or four months? Jeez, Mark, six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in lots of pain and... Sorry to hear that. All kinds of visits and... And uh, trying to discover source and you know ways to get around it. And Did you ever find anything, or is it the usual medical treadmill stuff? Oh, treadmill stuff. I, hate I, that. I was actually I was this past Wednesday, you know, because I'm back I'm back at work one day a week. Right. You know, I I my doctor who I saw for a physical a couple months ago. Everything else seems fine. He also sent me to. Uh, he said, well, let's check, like, all your organs, you know, just in case. I'm like, yeah, okay. So they checked my kidneys, my gallbladder, and those all that. There's nothing really I could find. Yeah. So when I did see him, he says, well, there's a guy here I could recommend, like another sports medicine guy. He said, he's very good, though. Right. I said, all right. He's associated with NYU. He's got to be better than the other guy. Mm-hmm. Who, after my visits, and, the, you know, he did provide the cortisone shots. That guy started billing me crazy amounts of money. Whoa. And I'm like, what's this? I go there, and they say my company is X amount, and I pay that. Yeah. And I get bills of hundreds of dollars, and I'm like, I'm not paying this. Yeah. <laughs> and they kept billing me, and then suddenly it got sorted out. You got to watch out with medical billing. I'll tell you, when my father died, my mother was paying it. And I know it was the same bills because I saw them. Like three and four times over for years. I was like, "What the hell is this crap?" And, you know, I was the one that had to push back. I'm like, "Wait a minute, stop paying this fucking thing." You know, there's no reason for this. She already did this like six times because she was like throw the papers in a pile. I'm like, "Yeah, here it is. Here's the last time you paid this thing." They are really notorious. This country has. It's funny because everybody's like, "Oh, especially on the right. Oh, we have such great healthcare." Oh, bullshit. We have like the worst healthcare in the world unless you're super rich and willing to pay for it. You know, somehow six times over with what you're supposed to pay in the first place. It's really bad. And then, so this guy I was supposed to see a uh, day before, they sent me an email saying, due to his schedule, can't keep the appointment. Mm-hmm. Well, it took me months to make that appointment. <laughs> so I go in, I look, next availability, July. Yeah, they're never in office. They never have time for you. Mm-hmm. The insurance companies don't want to cover anybody or anything. The companies aren't paying any of it, really. So you're paying like 90% of the insurance plus big co-pays plus deal with these doctors, and then they want to charge you over what the copay gets. I'm like, really? It's a, it's a mess. And, you know, the medical treadmill shit, I had some of that myself recently. They expected certain things, and every doctor I went to, go to this one, go to that one, go see somebody else, they send you somewhere else. They were all like, oh, you're fine. Oh, you're fine. Oh, no, there's nothing there. Oh, okay, well, it, it turned out the, the only thing that they found was what we knew in the first place. Oh, you have sleep apnea. Yeah, well, um, kind of waking up several times a night. My wife says I'm snoring like crazy. I'm sitting up in my sleep. Yeah, I think I have sleep apnea. I'm exhausted all day long. So mm. now uh, they finally, and, and that took a long time too. It was like, oh yeah, rush on this, getting this stupid machine after doing all these tests and all these places and whatever else. And it took, that supposed rush took a month. Because, like, oh, wait, here it is. We, we got the thing for you. It was, they got all this information. They set up an appointment to come down and show you how to use it and give it to you and whatever. And then 
they call back, oh, no, wait, we didn't get the approval from the insurance yet. My doctor's like, just call the insurance company and yell at them. What do they want you to do, die? I just laughed at him because I'm fine. Regardless, it took another week and a half, maybe two weeks. So we're talking about a whole month from the supposed rush to get this thing to when I actually got it. The only good thing is now I've had it for a week, and both of us are getting a hell of a lot more sleep. I'm waking up like once a night. My wife's not waking up because I'm not waking her up and jostling her or whatever the hell. I'm not snoring. And I got more energy during the day, so it definitely did something, but you know... Really? <laughs> all these doctors, all that shit, all this information, all this wasted money, all this time just to find out what we all knew from second one. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been having that problem for ever since my first booster. I, I think just guessing maybe it has something to do with it, you know? Yeah, what say get the back thing all figured out? <laughs> I, I, you know, I... I brought my walking stick which i could take apart mm. you know with me i use it the night before in hut florida okay and uh, the first three nights in the ship oh my god this ship was so big you had the theater which is on three floors but only accessible by one on one end mm. and then a ice rink when they're not using it it's it's had great sound they called it studio b some bands I shot video from actually is from Studio B mm-hmm. on the other side of the ship. And then they had a club space, which was nice, but it had pillars, which, and you know, they go any place, like the bottom line, any place with pillars, you know, bad, bad sight line. And that was on the other side of the ship. So if you, same thing, same deals before, although first time they used this ship for this event, you had to go, okay, I'm seeing this here, but an hour later, this band's here <laughs> and did and when i got this oh it's gonna be you know those seats when i got there every band this time was doing the dreaded sound check of hell oh jeez. um there was lines queued up all the way around the ship absolutely incredible <laughs> i got into nearly everything i wanted to see right some things i just couldn't because of timing right and some things i'm like I, I I like to see them, <laughs> but you know you you can only see so much. And I missed some interesting stuff. The Zappa band was there. The guys who played with Frank. Mm-hmm. I not a huge Zappa fan. Some people may be more oh, yeah. than me. <laughs> no, I mean I'm just saying though. But everybody said oh they were really good. So you know I would like to have seen them for worked out. There's about two or three others. Um, that sounds just like the Renaissance Fair when you go there. They schedule everything you want to see at once, and then you get big blocks where there's nothing going on. I'm like, really? <laughs> just plan it better. No, actually, even when there was nothing, there was always something going on. This time when they, they went to the island of Labadee, which is Haiti, right. one day, and Coco Cay, which is in Bahamas. For the first time ever, I went there just for a couple hours. And those are Royal Caribbean Islands. Did you run a foul of any of the locals, like Left Eye Lopez and get yourself killed by a voodoo witch doctor? <laughs> well, you know what? They tell you, you stay in this enclosed area. Right. Through that gate is, uh, it's outside of this inlet. Mm-hmm. And there's merchant villages. You can go if you want, but we don't really, you know, of course people go, could I go hiking? And they're looking at you, like, no, you don't want to go hiking. You're going to get kidnapped. <laughs> and they, they were really hardcore trying to sell you some in Haiti, some interesting stuff, but some stuff like, how am I going to get this? Yeah. And regardless, when we got off the ship this time, you went to a video scan of your face. Interesting. And they didn't look at your stuff. You could have came back with anything. Wow. Yeah. 
Before, they went through your stock. Now, stop here, automated, yeah. you know, do retina scan. Wow. You can pass. And I'm thinking, where, where do I go next? You know, because usually they want to look at your passport. They want to look at your stuff. Why are they doing retina scans on you? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It took forever to get on the ship, too, because we had to have proof of vaccination card. Okay, got that. Passport, get that. Uh anything else you have we had to get tested within two days prior to the sailing by a person right right so they send you an email so you know you have like i can't close this app i can't close this app because you have to show them you know because nobody prints anything out and so we they sent the email the day before what time do you think you'll get to the ship for boarding so all right we all you know me and two guys roaming okay we'll get this 11 30 (laughs) and We got there. There was a line around this terminal, and it was fucking hot. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. And you're in DeSantis territory, so COVID floating around. Right. So, yo, so everybody's negative. Then, uh, everybody should have been. I got we got tested at the hotel. Smart idea, right? Right. They had a service. Of course, you had to pay for it. But there was a couple of bands playing in a convention center for Cruise to the Edge mm-hmm. the night before. It was packed. Right. The ba- that two bands did not go on the cruise, and a lot of people who went to see that didn't necessarily have to go on the cruise. So that something could have happened there. Sure. Also, the ship was unusually warm. Okay. Indoors, I've never experienced that before. It was like. Wow, where's the cold spots? <laughs> yeah, you, usually you come inside, you're like, oh, what a pleasure. Exactly right. And it was like, oh. <laughs> Only the casino and the indoor performance spaces were like, well, air conditioned. But uh, yeah, so, you know, coming back, I think it may have been that a lot of people on the cruise team get it from the cruise. They could have got at the airport mm-hmm. because they, in Florida, they do not enforce at all, you know, that mask thing. Right. And so, yo, know, Orlando's crazy. It's packed. And, uh, you know, they canceled our flight going there. So we had to jostle at the last minute for a Delta flight, which costs Dr. Evil amounts of money. Wow. Coming back, they kept our flight, but it was at six. Mm-hmm. And they threw you off the ship this year before you could disembark uh, slowly. Interesting. And now they want you to get the hell out. <laughs> They did. At 8.15, we went in the, the hallway. My friend wanted to, let's go for breakfast. I said, I don't think so this year. And we looked in the hall. Rooms are all, the doors are open. People are gone. Wow. So, uh, so we got to the airport. It was like, oh, nine. So I went to the our airline. I said, we don't want to sit here for six hours or 10 hours. You know, can't you find another flight? Like, no, we have nothing. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> we finally boarded at 5.30, and then... They shut the engine off. They said there are high winds in New York. Okay. This was uh, Saturday night. And they said, we don't even know if we're going anywhere. I'm like, what? And they sitting <laughs> on the plane for three hours. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like airport, the first one <laughs> with Dean Martin. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, they, and, and uh, it's a spirit. No water, nothing right. free. Wow. And, you know, you get dry mouth after a while. They're like, you guys don't have any free water? No, they don't get peanuts or nothing on there. And she and she's <laughs> like, Well, it's six fifty and like Whoa. I'm like, Really? I tell you what, I'll give you a cup of ice. <laughs> but the plane's cold, so it's never gonna melt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another story. Why don't you test this out and we'll do uh Marlo. Marlo, I'm ready. Sure. Okay. 